I'm Alistair Stevens. I'm Elizabeth Ray. And Tom Cruise is Ron Kovic in Born on the Fourth of July. If you've known me for more than like five minutes, you will know that I love a good, robust taxonomy. It's like part of the medievalist in me. And I'm interested in your taxonomic categorization of a certain type of film that you've been growing weary of over the last few weeks. (laughs) Elizabeth, what is a boy movie and why are you done with it? I'm so over the boy movies. I know. And it's funny because when we started to do the podcast, I'm thinking about the Tom Cruise movies. I was thinking about so many of these films that I consider for everyone, I guess, that I, or, or not necessarily, you know, a woman's film. I'm thinking about Far and Away and I'm thinking about Jerry Maguire and sure. Vanilla Sky and like some interesting kind of fun, sexy movies. And I just was not prepared for all of the boy of it, for all of the, I mean, wow. It's a very male-centric filmography. It is. He has never worked with a female director. Not that there are that that many female directors at this point in history in particular. That is very true. Tell me about boy movies. What are the, the qualities of a boy movie? What is it that you're weary of, I suppose? It it seems so simple, but the world revolves around this one guy who's usually kind of a wanker and I don't care about him anyway. And then the women in his life are really only there to uplift and support him. And it's exhausting. So examples in Tom Cruise's oeuvre thus far would be... All of them. I mean, yeah. Which, what are we saying here? I'm looking down at this. I've got the list here in front of me. We got a little bit of good girlfriending in all the right moves, right? But then they lost her at the end. Oh, she's there. Leah Thompson's character is more there to serve Tom Cruise's character in that film than in most of the films we've discussed, I feel like. You're right. It was just at least a person and not just like... And I think that's maybe even in the performance, too. Valeria Galino in Rain Man. Meg Ryan momentarily in Top Gun. But still, both roles there to serve the men, for sure. Absolutely. Absolutely. Stories for men about men. I don't know. Yeah, Yeah, I'm I'm really interested in digging into this. And this perhaps isn't a conversation that we can have in its entirety now. This is going to be an unfolding conversation, I think, as we move through this next middle period of Cruz's career, Mm -hmm. in which he will alternate between kind of mass market, broad appeal, leading man kind of performances, but keep regressing to these very masculine performances, very archetypally male performances. It's going to be interesting to see how all of that connects together. And it's particularly egregious this week because we're dealing with director Oliver Stone, who who is a guy, who is Mm. a man's man kind of filmmaker, but of a very peculiar sort. Here's the thing about Oliver Stone. The man has an extensive history of having opinions, of saying insensitive and gross things in public, including anti-Semitic things, politically incendiary things, very sophomoric things. Mm. And then he'll kind of apologize and he'll kind of claw it back and he'll regret his actions and his words in public. But it won't in any way stop him from doing it again. Ugh. You can go online and you can find outrageous statements by Stone voicing conspiracy theories, voicing some really weird and politically naive responses to situations in the Middle East, Mm -hmm. expressing outright unconditional support for real raging homophobes in the world, including, of course, most notably Vladimir Putin, of whom Oliver Stone seems to be a sincere fan, which is an insane thing to say in 2023. And he's doing all of it with this this swagger and sense of self-importance. 
my read on him is that he sees himself, I think, as many, you know, smart, privileged, enfranchised men on the left do because they believe or believe that they believe in this like robust, two-fisted kind of debate, the cut and thrust of politics, like good man will out. It's kind of the vision that we get from Aaron Sorkin too and a lot of his more politicized work. Mm -hmm. And I think that Oliver Stone, much like Aaron Sorkin, sees himself as an asshole on the side of the angels. That he's going to say the things that you can't really say, that he's going to start conversations, that he's going to be a firebrand. But the problem with that self-appointed role is that if you don't engage in sufficient self-reflection, if you do not recognize your privilege and put yourself in a position of service mm. to your community, to your society, then you are not an asshole on the side of the angels. You are just an asshole. <laughs> and I say that. As someone who spent much of his 20s in a similar position, <laughs> I was that guy. I grew out of it. Oliver Stone, it seems, never will. Yeah. Do you have a history with Oliver Stone? You don't. I know you don't no, because he is just the movies. manliest yeah. filmmaker. Yeah. No. It's like asking if you've seen a lot of Clint Eastwood movies. Right. <laughs> Which I have, actually, because my dad was a fan. <laughs> That's so the reason I've everyone seen, has seen exactly. Clint Eastwood movies. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, no, my dad never watched those like big war movies that I remember. Like I know that he liked Platoon. Is that Platoon Oliver Stone is, as well? Yes, that yeah. is the big breakout movie. That is what makes Oliver Stone's career. That is what literally leads him to Born on the Fourth of July. Okay, yeah. I think he liked that one, although I'm not certain. I know that he liked Bridge on the River Kwai. Which I also never saw. <laughs> Not an Oliver Stone movie. Yes. No, I'm just talking about like boy war, <laughs> just war movies, movies in I general. Guess. Yeah. 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 But what's funny is that when I was a teenager, I loved certain war movies. Of course, that was when Saving Private Ryan came out, which was really a beautiful film uh, that I enjoyed. I watched Band of Brothers as well. And I wanted to like Pearl Harbor, although that was a disaster, as everyone probably remembers. But I was excited to go see it in theaters. Yeah. Remembering, of course, that Band of Brothers and Saving Private Ryan are within like, what, two years of each oh, yeah. other? They're so It's basically the same production team. Sure. They're so yeah. close together. And you're right. That particular HBO prestige TV version of the Second World War in particular, which is a safe war from yes, our perspective. From our like, perspective, yes. It has a clean narrative thrust. Yeah. Very clear bad guys, which, which is, is helpful. What yeah. I think is so interesting about, in a sense, Korea, but certainly Vietnam, and of course moving on into the Gulf War in the 1990s mm -hmm. and the ongoing conflicts in the Middle East, Vietnam is the first modern war in the sense that it is a mess. It's a yeah. disaster. It's 30 years of ongoing commitment, of, of unimaginable loss of life. Yeah. It's a real blight, I think, on... The American social consciousness, which is really what this film is about. Right. It's, it's about what is Vietnam and how does it change America? And I think that Oliver Stone believes that though Vietnam is a tragedy, it changes America for the better. Do you think that that's part of his conclusion here? Mm, I don't know. I, I, I'm not a history buff and certainly not a war history buff. So there will be certain parts of what should be just like... <laughs> my American high school education that are kind of a blip on my m memory radar. Well, you grew up, though, in the 90s. You were born in 84. But right. really, by the time that you are a conscious, thinking, <laughs> educated person, mm -hmm. we've kind of set the Vietnam War aside. And yeah. I'm saying all of this, of course, as a British person who was not schooled in the Vietnam War at all mm. when I was growing up. So I came to this much later and kind of filled in my own understanding of what happened. But the 90s, I think... A decade simultaneously of 
disenfranchisement and disengagement, but also of like moral objectivity, right? There are good mm. things and bad things in the 90s. So we don't want to talk about Vietnam that's anymore. That's what I felt that's, is that people didn't want to talk about it. Yeah. And that's why that we turned kind of back glossed over. to the Second World War. Yeah. And certainly my feeling of the Vietnam War growing up was that, yeah, it was an embarrassing mistake that sure, people didn't sure. want to talk about. Yeah. So obviously this is going to be Maybe not the most fun episode of The Last yeah. Star in Hollywood as we discuss this film. It's an Can ugly topic. you encapsulate your feelings on this film without necessarily getting into specifics, but just give us a broad emotional response before we get into the trailer game and the backstory to this particular production? Uh, yeah, I think that ultimately I was grateful to have seen it because it did give me much more perspective on the Vietnam War and the particular veteran response to the Vietnam War, sure. which was really interesting to me, because you did get to see, I think, more or less both sides. Like, it, it was... Yes. You know what I mean? In that characters on screen would articulate both sides yes. of the argument, particularly in the earlier stages of the conflict in Vietnam. I find Oliver Stone's didacticism, I find his heavy-handedness uh -huh. so thunderous. Oh, yes. That... It's not a subtle film. It's almost that he is mocking the people who disagree with him while giving them the articulation of their arguments. You know, yes. he's, he's having these people represent themselves, even though everything about the structure of the film tells us that, no, actually, they're idiots. He's not right. doing it expressly on screen. Yeah. Yes, mm -hmm. yeah. yes, yes. I, f I found it very compelling to have this idea that morality and ideals could be impressed upon someone in a way that was ultimately to manipulate them and, and to watch a person reckoning with what they have become and what has been stripped away from them. I, I don't know. In, in that sense, I found the movie really quite effective. Yes. I agree with you. I think that the character study of Ron Kovic yeah. is ultimately extremely compelling and anchored in, let's just acknowledge this right here at the beginning of the show, an absolute phenomenon of a performance from Cruz. Yes, I Unlike do think so. anything mm -hmm. we've ever seen from him. I didn't know that he had this in him. But the problem is that that character piece is put in service of yes. Oliver Stone's sophomoric back-of-an-envelope politics. Yeah. Even yeah. the idea of, you're right, being betrayed, being institutionally lied to, mm -hmm. is given this sheen of conspiracy theory simplicity right the big yes. problem with conspiracy theories is that for all of their labyrinthine twists and turns they're actually reductive they're, they're actually simple. just simplistic yeah, absolutely. they don't recognize the complexity of the real world they don't account for the possibility that people are imperfect right mm -hmm. and stone as is evident from this film and as will be legendarily evident in his follow-up film jfk is a man who wants to rhetorically reduce complexity mm -hmm. in order to deliver this <laughs> asshole on the side of the angels point. Yeah. He wants to score oratorical points more than he wants to delve into nuance. And that's not even necessarily a bad thing for a filmmaker, right? There are yeah. lots of filmmakers out there who make a very healthy career out of rendering simply things that are complex, but they do not purport to undertake complex subjects or complex tasks. <laughs> yeah. And that is a problem. I went into this film not really liking the work of Oliver Stone, and I'm coming yeah. out of it really disliking the work of <laughs> Oliver Stone. Yeah. I'm just, yeah, not a fan of, of his personal politics or his filmmaking style. I, I, I will fair. say, this is a very competently made film. 
It is a very adequately shot Adequate, and edited yeah. film. Mm-hmm. But the uses to which that competence is put. Uh, yeah. <laughs> was the most expressive sigh I've ever given on a podcast. It was. That's our Letterboxd <laughs> review. <laughs> Uh, let's get into it then. I'm about to hand you a poison chalice because oh, I'm so no. sorry, Elizabeth. Yes. It's your turn on the trailer game. And mm. if you just want to bail on this one, I would completely understand. <laughs> oh, let me see. In 1959, the little town of Massapequa, New York, celebrates its hometown heroes with the fluttering American flag flying high. Little Ronnie Kovic plays war games with his buddies in the woods and dreams of being an American hero. In 1969, he will return home from war, half the man he was. Grieving the loss of his legs and his ideals, Ron Kovic will take up arms again this time against the American political system. Tom Cruise is born on the 4th of July. An admirable job. A Ugh, sterling job. Good thanks. Lord. That was hard and sad. I don't know that there's going to be a more difficult version of the trailer game yeah. in the rest of Cruise's career, yeah. maybe, but we'll see. Well, I'm like... Because the movie might be silly, but what happened to Ron Kovic deserves respect. Absolutely, yeah. We're going to talk about that right now, in fact, because Born on the Fourth of July really is the story of these two men, right? It is the story of Ron Kovic. It is the story of Oliver Stone. Both are born in 1946. But that is really where the similarities end. Stone is born to a Jewish father and a French mother and grows up in Manhattan and in Stanford, Connecticut, an only child. He attends the Trinity School on the Upper West Side and prep school in Pennsylvania. His parents divorce in 1962, and he splits his time between school and summering with his grandparents in Paris. After graduating, he is admitted to Yale. Tough life. Kovic, on the other hand, is born in Ladysmith, Wisconsin, the second of six. His father is of Croatian ancestry and his mother is Irish. He grows up, as the film suggests, in Massapequa on Long Island and attends the local high school. In 1965, both Kovic and Stone go to Vietnam. Kovic has enlisted, as we see in the film, and is serving in the H&S Company 3rd Battalion, 7th Marines, 1st Marine Division. Stone drops out of Yale to go to South Vietnam and teach English to high school students in Saigon. Vietnam becomes, for these men, for an entire generation, a crucible. Kovic's story is obviously mostly told by the film, so we can move over the details. He writes his autobiography in the mid-1970s, and it is published in 1976. The rights are immediately bought by Artists Entertainment Complex. Producer Martin Bregman, who has previously worked on Serpico and Dog Day Afternoon, takes charge of the project... And Al Pacino is cast as Kovic. Whoa. This is before Al Pacino descends into self-parody, it should yeah. be noted. This is when he's still you know, okay. giving performances. I could, I could see it. Principal photography is supposed to begin in June of 1977, but obviously that is not what happens. Instead, Paramount is signed as a distributor and then drops out. United Artists are then signed first for distribution, then they take over production. Canadian director Daniel Petrie is attached He's best known for television work, though, and can't really move the project along as quickly as he should. By the middle of 1978, it's reported that UA has also dropped out, Petrie is no longer attached, and the film might never happen. It is around this time that Stone and Kovic meet 
Stone, after teaching in Saigon, had enlisted in the U.S. Army and requested combat duty in Vietnam. He serves in the 25th Infantry Division from September of 1967 until February of the following year. In that time, he is wounded in action twice. He's then transferred to the 1st Cavalry Division. He's first engaging in long-range patrols and then working as a driver for the mechanized infantry. He leaves Vietnam in November of 1968 after 14 months. Among other awards, and like Kovic, he is awarded a Bronze Star and a Purple Heart. Stone returns to the U.S. and attends NYU, graduating with a BFA in film in 1971. One of his professors is Martin Scorsese. Hmm. He works every job that comes his way. He is hustling to get started in his film career. In 1974, he writes and directs a strange horror movie called Seizure, which is, it's alleged, partly funded by the pornographer, gangster, and convicted murderer Michael Thevis as a means of laundering money. Wow. In 1977, Stone adapts Billy Hayes' novel Midnight Express about imprisonment in a Turkish prison, for which he wins the Oscar for Best Adapted Screenplay. Off of this success, he is hired to adapt Born on the Fourth of July for Bregman. But as the production falls apart, only Stone and Kovic are left, and Stone doesn't have the juice to get this film made. Mm. At least, not yet. He goes off to write on Conan the Barbarian in 1982, Whoa. Scarface in 1983, Boy Year of the movies. Dragon in 1985. <laughs> oh in 86, he directs and releases two films, Salvador, an account of the Salvadoran Civil War of 1979 starring James Woods and Jim Belushi, which is an odd combination, mm -hmm. and, of course, Platoon, maybe the definitive Vietnam movie, starring Tom Berenger, who will, of course, show up in this film, Willem Dafoe, who will show up in this film, Charlie Sheen, who will thankfully not, Keith David, Forrest Whitaker. It's an incredible cast. It is a landmark film. It wins Oscars for Best Picture, Best Director, Best Editing, and Best Sound. And with this success under his belt, Stone can start calling the shots. Cruz is officially cast in the new production of Born on the Fourth of July in May of 1988. Universal Pictures has picked up the project and offers a budget of $14 million, which is not nearly enough to make no. this film. So both Stone and Cruz elect to not be paid for their work <gasps> and rather take points on the back end. Wow. That's a huge role to undertake to not be paid for up front. I can't imagine. This did not look like a fun film to make. Well, it is... A credibility play. It's and true. It's this true. is what we really see from Cruz in this part of his career. He has this early success. He's the young, hot, cool guy. And then he wants to work with Newman. And he wants to work with Hoffman. He's yeah. going to auteur directors to get credibility. Mm -hmm. And of course, in part thanks to Rain Man, <laughs> this is how you get credibility. Yeah. You play someone disabled. Mm. And of course, there's another aspect to Cruz's involvement in this film, which is the shadow of Top Gun. He gives a fantastic mm. interview to Playboy in 1990. I'm going to quote this directly. Playboy asks, is Born a redemption of Top Gun? To which Cruz replies, quote, they are two different things. Top Gun's a joyride and shouldn't be looked at beyond that. Born is about real people and real events. Top Gun should be looked at as going on Space Mountain. It's a simple fairy tale. To which the Playboy interviewer replies, quote, a lot of boys have gone off to war on that kind of drumbeat. That's the history of war. Young, callow kids marching off to fairy tale glory, as in Top Gun. Cruz gives a flat answer. He makes a joke out of it, actually. Mm -hmm. And then ultimately will say that this is why he does not go on to make sequels to Top Gun. It would be, quote, irresponsible. So 
A, let us note the incredible tradition of interviewing from the fine folks at Playboy, and B... Always excellent. God, Cruz has already mastered the ability to say nothing in an interview. To just deflect. Yeah, yeah that's interesting. Principal photography for Born on the Fourth of July begins in October of 1988, and they shoot through to the beginning of 1989 in the Philippines and in Dallas, Texas, and, of course, in Los Angeles. After principal photography is complete, Universal looks at the last sequence in the film of the Democratic National Convention and decides that it does not work. So they give Stone half a million dollars, 6,000 extras, and one day to shoot that entire last sequence. Wow. Yeah. It okay. is impressive, I'll yeah, say that. Yeah, it is. The final budget of the film is $17.8 million. That's still not that much for such an ambitious film. No, and you can feel it, I think. Sometimes, Particularly yeah. Particularly the sequences that are set in Vietnam, I think, do not really work. They don't really communicate any sense of scale. They don't communicate any sense of real presence, honestly. No, I, I suppose when I see other, even if it's bits and pieces of like Vietnam War movies, it's very tropical and like sweaty and shiny. And this definitely looks very, you know, an hour outside of L.A. in a desert someplace where we put up a couple of huts. Which These sequences is... were actually shot in the Philippines, which is what makes it so strange. That is strange yes. in the Philippines. Wow. Yeah. yeah. That's fascinating. No, I don't know. But I something about the anonymity of those spaces really worked for me and that it felt that they could be almost anywhere that it was just just a poor village just a space just a field actually kind of worked for me that's interesting. because it I, I feel like that's one of the reasons or one of the ways in which filmmakers painted Vietnam as like this out of control jungle Charlie in the bushes thing is making it feel so claustrophobic and tropical. But having this space feel like a space I could have seen before made the whole thing feel less exotic and therefore sure, sure. almost more real to me. I hear what you're saying. I think that's a really interesting perspective. I am, I think coming into this film already a little suspicious of Oliver Stone's tendency to, care very much about the things that he cares about and care not at all about the things that do not matter. And this felt to me like a first pass piece of, of setting that's happening here. That yeah. It doesn't matter. It's not important. The events that are important here will be treated so robustly by the, the cinematography of yeah. the production that it really and doesn't matter where grading. we are or why. Mm -hmm. So... But I think that, yeah, I think you're you're giving a really interesting perspective there that this doesn't feel like Vietnam. It doesn't feel like the Vietnam films that we've seen before. It doesn't feel like Platoon, mm -hmm. crucially. And I think that there's a, a good point there, yeah. Hmm. The film opens December 20th, 1989, almost exactly a year after the release of Rain Man. It makes $162 million at the international box office. So rest assured, you okay. guys, Cruise and Stone both got paid. They got paid. It is yeah. nominated for eight Academy Awards, including a Best Actor Oscar for Cruise. Wow. Of those nominations, it wins two Best Director and Best Editing. Best Director. I know. I don't recall feeling strongly about the editing either, but okay. The Best Director Oscar is a little baffling, particularly in this period when Best Director is so often most director. Like, how yeah. voicey is your film? Right. But the editing here is really nothing special. The editing in this film, though it is extremely competent, often feels like a TV movie. It I feels was like feeling the, most the same basic way. Like, and now we patterns. cut to commercial. Yeah, yeah that's yeah. so odd. That is not helped, I think, by 
a very strict structure. Yes. The film works in half hour chunks. Mm -hmm. We get four full half hour chunks almost to the minute. And then we get a little coda at the end as yeah. we move into that sequence that I mentioned at mm -hmm. the DNC in New York. So it is a little rigorous. So yeah, both of those wins, kind of baffling. In fact, let's take a look at the 62nd Academy Awards, shall we? This is the <laughs> 1990 ceremony for the films of 1989, because that will always be confusing to me whenever I, know, I try I and look this stuff up <laughs> online, which I have to do more often than you would think. I want to take a look at the uh, best actor race here. Robin Williams for Dead Poet Society, uh -huh. Morgan Freeman for Driving Miss Daisy, Tom Cruise for Born on the Fourth of July, Kenneth Branagh for Henry V, and Daniel Day-Lewis, who wins for My Left Foot. Right. A win that is absolutely predicated upon the success of Rain Man the previous year. When I talked in last week's episode yeah. about Rain Man leading to this phenomenon of half of all the best actor winners are going to win for the portrayal of characters with physical or intellectual ailments. This is exactly what I'm talking about. Yeah. So I think we can credit that in large part with Daniel Day-Lewis's win there. Kenneth Branagh is certainly giving it in Henry V. It's been a while since I've seen that film. I might have to go back and reappraise it. I remember it being a very, very big performance. Yes. Morgan Freeman is lovely in Driving Miss Daisy. That is not a film that we should be making in 1989, yeah. you guys. And how do you feel about Robin Williams and Dead Poets Society? I mean, obviously. <laughs> <laughs> There's a movie made for me. Who would you give that award to? And yet, to? that's all boys. I don't all think boys. there's a woman in that movie. But it's not a boys film. But this not is a, a boy really movie. great yeah. addition to your taxonomy. Yes. That's true. Not all films about boys are boys films. Right. Yes. Because that's about beauty and poetry and exactly. love and inspiration and mm -hmm. kinship and fellowship. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Not a feminist movie either, but, you know, still. Let's quickly run through the uh, Best Picture nominees as well, because we also get Driving Miss Daisy. We also get Dead Poet Society. We also get My Left Foot. We also get Born on the Fourth of July. And we get, weirdly, Field of Dreams. Oh, that no, is weird. I like Field of Dreams just fine. <laughs> but one of these films is not like the That's other. That's so odd. <laughs> just in case you're wondering, 1989 is generally considered a great year for films. It sounds like it, yeah. So we've got all of those nominees, right? That, that's a pretty good list. Mm -hmm. Also in 1989, Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, Back to the Future 2, Batman, When Harry Met Sally, The Abyss, Do the Right Thing, Say Anything, Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure, Uncle Buck, Major League, The Burbs, Steel Magnolias, Parenthood, Sex, Lies, and Videotape, Honey, I Shrunk the Kids, The War of the Roses, The War of the Roses with Kathleen Turner and yeah. Michael Douglas and Danny DeVito, Roadhouse, <laughs> and The Little Mermaid. That's a great year. I'm not sure that any of the Oscar nominees for Best Picture would make my list of Oscar nominees for Best Picture <laughs> that year. Wow. But sure, let's talk about Driving Miss Daisy. <laughs> <laughs> Two months after the release of Born on the Fourth of July, noted anti-Semite and terrible person Pat Buchanan wrote a beat-by-beat -beat critique of the film, noting every instance where it deviated from the contents of the book and... A couple of occasions when the contents of the book deviated from recorded history. Ah, interesting. Despite the fact that Stone had fabricated several elements in the film out of whole cloth and publicly apologized after the fact for doing so, this is a matter of public record, these dramatized elements would continue to be a major part of his semi-fictional creative non-fiction approach to filmmaking for the rest of his career. This takes us back, of course, to JFK. In the aftermath of JFK, Washington Post columnist George Will called Oliver Stone, quote, a man of technical skill, scant education, and negligible conscience. Oof. Give that man an award. Mm. Give that man several awards. <laughs> he can have the Best Picture Award. It's fine. 
Normally, at this point in the background, we'll run through the supporting cast and we'll talk about who else is in this film. But the truth is that almost no one else is in this film, at least not for any length of time. The only two people that we really have to talk about are Willem Dafoe and Kira Sedgwick. Yep. Willem Dafoe was born in 1955 in Appleton, Wisconsin. His father was a doctor and his mother a nurse, and they worked very long hours, leaving Dafoe to be raised mostly, as he says, by his five sisters. His name is, technically, William but he is immediately nicknamed Willem in the Dutch tradition by oh, the Dutch sweet. expats who live in that part of the mm -hmm. world. He graduates high school and attends the drama program at the University of Wisconsin in Milwaukee. He drops out after a year and a half to join an experimental theater program in the city called Theater X, and thereafter moved to New York. In 1977, he becomes romantically involved with stage director Elizabeth Lecomte, with whom he would be in a relationship until 2004. A success on the New York stage. By 1980, he's ready to transition into film, and his first role is in Michael Cimino's cataclysmic flop western Heaven's Gate, one of the least successful movies of all time. Wow. Luckily, he's all but cut out of the film and is, in fact, <laughs> uncredited. His first lead role is in 1982 in The Loveless, a motorcycle movie co-directed by Catherine Bigelow and Monty Montgomery. He appears in some low-budget fare through the 80s, but he hits success in the aforementioned Platoon in 1986, in which he's nominated for Best Supporting Actor. 88 seals his reputation with three movies, the Vietnam thriller Off Limits, Scorsese's The Last Temptation of Christ, and Alan Parker's oh, Mississippi yeah. Burning, in which he is fantastic opposite Gene Hackman. Hmm. This absolutely sets the stage for his role in Born on the Fourth of July, or at least it would, except he's barely in this film, and when he is, he's crazy. <laughs> yeah. It is a lunatic performance, even by the somewhat heightened standards, of Willem Dafoe. Yeah. From this point forward, I mean, lunacy is kind of his stock in trade, right? He's right. in Wild at Heart in 1990, Clear and Present Danger in 1994, The English Patient Brilliantly in 1996, Boondock Saints, one of your yeah. favorites. That's a boys movie you like in 1999. Yeah, I don't know how much I like it anymore, but I certainly did love it for a time. <laughs> he gives an incredible performance in the first Sam Raimi Spider-Man film in 2002. Mm. And from that point on, has this bifurcated career in which he can mix the weirdest of offbeat art films and auteur directors. He works with Werner Herzog and he works with Wes Anderson and he works with Lars von Trier and the most mainstream films because he's also in The Fault in Our Stars yeah. and John Wick and Murder on the Orient Express <laughs> and Aquaman for crying out loud. <laughs> Even impossibly returns as Norman Osborn in Spider-Man No Way Home and pretty much going toe-to-toe -to -toe with Alfred Molina yeah. in terms of gravitas and greatness. That cast the Spider-Man No Way Home it is the worst movie with the best performances in it. <laughs> you've got Molina, you've got Defoe, you've got Marissa Tomei, of course. You've got course. Andrew Garfield giving the performance of his life, performing like his life depends on it. In fact, <laughs> Tobey Maguire might be better in that film than he's ever been in anything. Thomas Hayden Church also mm -hmm. bringing the pathos. It is a series of fantastic performances that adds up to not that much, unfortunately. <laughs> Watch it with wine, I think, is what I'm <laughs> <Yes>. saying. <laughs> We should also talk, as I said, about Kira Sedgwick. She is born in New York City in 1965, the daughter of a speech therapist and a venture capitalist. She attends Friends Seminary. Do you know about Friends Seminary? Is this a Quaker school? It is a Quaker school. It is basically the most prestigious school in Manhattan. Wow. It's founded by Quakers in the 18th century, and it is now phenomenally well-regarded 
and phenomenally expensive. It is K through 12, that is kindergarten to high school graduation from ages 5 to 18 for our listeners in other parts of the world that perhaps don't understand the K through 12 system. <laughs> Tuition there works out to be between $50,000 and $55,000 a year. Dang. Vera Wang went there. Amanda yeah. Pete went there. Lena Dunham went there. And Lee Schreiber went there, interestingly. Wow. Yeah. From the Friends Seminary, she goes to Sarah Lawrence and then transfers to USC, where she graduates with a degree in theater. She moves into film and television in the early 1980s. She appears on the soap opera Another World in 82 and 83, does an episode of Miami Vice, does an episode of Amazing Stories, a couple of small roles in movies. But Born on the Fourth of July is kind of her breakout role, even though this film underserves her horribly. She works steadily through the 90s. She appears in Singles in 1992, Heart and Souls with Robert Downey Jr. Mm. in 1993, Phenomenon with John Travolta yes. in 1996. But really, she is now best known for TV, right? She is the closer. Even I know that she is the closer. Oh, and I yeah. don't really know what the closer is, but I do know that she did 109 <laughs> episodes of it. Yeah, that's I don't right. watch that kind of procedural you know, no. crime TV, but she's famous for being in it and I'm mm. sure has made a very healthy amount of money. Sure. She has also been married to Kevin Bacon since 1988. And They're, the two have worked together yeah. a bunch of times and are just generally adorable. They're yeah. very cute on social media. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> Ron Kovic wins the Golden Globe for Best Screenplay 22 Years to the Day after being wounded in Vietnam. Mm. In 1990, after the success of the film, he considers a run for Congress in California, but ultimately decides against it. Instead, he continues to campaign against, well, war in general, the first Gulf War yeah. in particular. He leads a huge protest against George W. Bush in 2003 in London and has continued to be a vocal anti-war protester in the years since. One last detail. On the last day of filming, Kovic gave Tom Cruise his bronze star. <gasps> telling him that it was for, quote, a heroic performance. Kovic talks about this all the time. To the best of my abilities to discover on the internet, Tom Cruise has never mentioned it, not once, which I find highly commendable. I do too. That's really lovely. Wow. And Cruise does give a phenomenal performance. He does. Yeah. There's no way around it. Yeah. He's, he's really wonderful in this. So before we get into the beat by beat, do you want to give me your emotional temperature as you were going into the film for the first time we had talked about this a little last week after recording the rain man episode that turns out this was the film we were dreading this yes. was the film that was weighing most heavily on our schedule yeah uh yes full of dread i think that we have put off this recording more than any other recording we're usually so far ahead of the game but now we're like oh you've got your christmas party don't worry about it uh so yeah i was full of dread we are recording this 12 hours before the people at home will be hearing it. <laughs> yep. It's going to be a tight edit on, on this one, you guys. On the ragged edge, yes. <laughs> no, I mean, I, I, I was pretty sure it was going to be a downer. And I wasn't sure how just like horrifically violent it would be. Um, and it was, but not all the way through. That was brief, at least. Uh, I was not anticipating and was quite rattled by the depiction of the veterans hospital yes it was a downer you're absolutely right it wasn't a downer in any of the ways that i thought it was going to be a downer hmm, that's interesting it is much worse in very different ways really harrowing yeah yeah and because we're recording this podcast 12 hours before it's released we're not even drinking to it yeah, it's, it's the middle of the afternoon you guys <laughs> we open then 
on voiceover and memory and the war play of children. This is Long Island in 1956, the year after American involvement in the Vietnam War begins, and Ron Kovic is playing at being a man. We cut to a 4th of July parade, and every single trope of 50s Americanism is here. Family mm-hmm. and flags, rock and roll and firecrackers. Most notably, we get American military pageantry as an element of national identity and the World War II veteran flinching at the sound of fireworks. Very good. I, I really liked the flinching of the veterans in the parade as it went on through, and that we get COVID doing the same thing later. That worked for me very well. Yes. I do find Oliver Stone to be incredibly heavy-handed. Oh, definitely. This, I I think maybe this is why this film occasionally feels like a TV movie, right? It occasionally feels like melodrama. As we've discussed before, the concept underlying modern melodrama is that emotions are so large that no emotion goes unexpressed. Mm, mm -hmm. Everything is articulated. Everything is realized visually on screen in front of you. And that's very much how the beginning of this film feels to me. Again, incredibly competently made. It's beautifully shot, but... Very heavy-handed. What do you think of this kid, Brian Larkin, who plays young Ron? Oh, you know what? He didn't distract me as bad, which means he must have been good for a kid actor. Right? Yeah. Yeah. He only acts in like six things and then leaves the industry. So okay, he's very adorable. I thought he looked very young when he kissed the girl. I was like, whoa, whoa, whoa! You kids are too young to be kissing. What is happening? This opening sequence, I should say, runs across like four years, which is a little bit. (gasps) The timeline is very shaky. Obviously, when they're playing in the uh, ravine right at the beginning, it is clearly fall. But then we cut from there to the 4th of July. But then we cut from there to President Kennedy's inauguration, which, of course, happens in January. And these people are not dressed like it's January. (laughs) So I think we're just blurring the timeline. Which is okay. It's how memory works. Yeah, I'm okay with that because we start with that voiceover and we're in, we might suppose, Kovic's memory POV. Yeah, yeah, sure. But it really is a blur. He gets his Yankees baseball cap. We mentioned Mickey Mantle. He has his first kiss. He hits a home run. And I don't know if you guys know this, but the 1950s were the peak of all human civilization. And it will never be that good again. It is a wild boomer fantasy. But again, so heavy handed that you're immediately sensitive to the satire, right? You're immediately sensitive to Stone's kind of sneering derision of this evocation of Americana. And the problem is that it's easy to be sneering about this flat depiction when you are the one making the flat depiction. Yes. You could have brought much more sensitivity and complexity and nuance to this, but you chose not to (laughs) so you could be a smartass about it. Very well observed, darling. (laughs) I think you're completely right. So we cut ahead to 61. We cut ahead to President Kennedy's first TV address. What an orator. It is impossible. Like, I understand the mythic power of JFK every time I see him on screen because his ability to command the audience Mm -hmm. is just outstanding. Yeah. Young Kovic is inspired and we cut forward to just the most aggressive high school gym coach that I've ever seen. Yeah. God, that was (laughs) awful. Because the time frame is so soft and because he is montaging through all of this, it gives the impression that this coach yells at Tom Cruise for an entire year. (laughs) The snows fall and he's still yelling. I think it's one of my first notes that I put is that there's too much yelling in this movie, just in general. There's a lot of yelling. Yeah. 
So we're moving really quickly here, introducing all of the thematic elements that will be relevant later. We're introducing his family. We're introducing the playboy and the specter of, <gasps> gasp, adult sexuality. Mm -hmm. We introduce the wrestling. We're getting all of these metaphors together. God only cares that you try your best, win or lose. You have to fight when you're on your back, etc., etc. We then get Tom Berenger giving this Marine Corps recruitment speech at yeah. the high school. This is fantastic. Like. Yep. Tom Berenger obviously still riding high from Platoon, so this is kind of a victory lap for him. And he is just just giving oratory at these young, impressionable men. Obviously, we have our concerns about military recruitment in high schools. And we had our concerns about military recruitment attached to the movie theaters showing Top Gun. Uh -huh. Insanely, there was also marine recruitment attached to movie theaters showing this film. Wow, I that does don't seem understand insane. That. How? Yeah. Maybe Here. they were hoping that kids would come and watch the first act and then walk out. So fired up are they by Tom Berenger? They're going to walk out and go be recruited into the Marine Corps. Wow. What do you think of this performance? Do you like this speech that he gives? Do you like the way that we are positioning the military man, but the Marine more than anyone at the center of... American identity politics? Do you like the way that we are, you know, through the 4th of July parade, through JFK's talk of service, you know, through mm -hmm. the way that the boys are competing in wrestling and, and playing at war in the woods? We're obviously positioning the military, the soldier, at the heart of American identity. Does that work for you? Does that ring as true to you? Growing up in the 90s was not so rah-rah military. We really didn't have anything going on until uh, the, the first Gulf War. I remember somewhat, but it was always divisive. And also, uh, like, I had an uncle who was overseas for a long time and, and came back after. But it was also with this sort of, what are we doing over there, sort of feeling. Yes, which is inherited, yeah. I think, in part from the response to Vietnam and is probably a part of why culturally this country downplays vietnam during the 90s because you are again committed overseas in a battle for mm. american ideals yes but also like american security american security yeah, yeah. economic sure. security in economic. particular in that mm -hmm. case yeah so it wasn't until again like the the saving private ryan phenomenon where there was a little bit more of that like American military hero fighting for ideals uh, against a clear bad guy, which kind of helped shore up some of that. But then it was really 9-11. Yeah, like That's when, when things turned. And then everyone who served their country was a hero. It drew very clean lines again, didn't very it? Clean it, lines. it managed to undo a lot of the cultural complexity that had mm. been accumulated in the years since Vietnam. Absolutely. Yeah. So you graduated high school in 2001? Two. Did you have military recruiters coming to your senior class? Well, we always did anyway because we were so close to the Air Force Base, remember? Right, sure, yeah. sure, sure. So there were so many military kids, many people whose parents uh, worked at the base or were in the Air Force went to my high school, even mm -hmm. though it wasn't the exact town. It was like the cute suburb just east yeah. of that town, you know? <laughs> um, so there was a lot, uh, there was a ROTC program too, or a JROTC, sure, I should sure, say. Yeah. yeah. So definitely. Yes. Kovic is inspired by this speech, decides to sign up early so that he doesn't miss the war in Vietnam, which is at least a nice note of irony there. His mother supports his decision, but his father has his concerns because his father saw service in the second yeah. world war. Kovic prays to Jesus for guidance and then runs to the high school gym where the prom is underway and kisses Donna and leaves for war. 
And that is the first half hour. That yeah. is almost perfectly the first half hour. That is our first act. I have to say, I really liked the from on your knees praying to Jesus on a crucifix to running to go kiss the girl worked for me very well. I thought that was quite charming. Actually. The kind of guidance you can get behind. <laughs> we then cut hard to 1967 to Vietnam. Kovic's unit opens fire on a civilian village. When they come under fire, they retreat, leaving a crying baby behind. And Kovic accidentally shoots and kills Wilson, a fellow Marine. Mm. And I don't want to be too critical of this guy who is like obviously so emotionally important in the film, but mm. not a great performance from Wilson. This is his only acting credit. Uh, <laughs> so I don't know who he was or where he came from. Not a great performance. Yeah, he didn't leave much of a mark. Yeah. Yeah. Obviously, in a way, this is the emotional heart of the film. Mm. It is at least the beginning of the emotional heart of the film. And I think that some filmmakers might be tempted to move the audience's sympathy by presenting this as a more traditional war story, at least in its opening movements. That is, that we would see our guys as heroic and as valorous and as chivalrous. Mm -hmm. The problem here is that from like the first shot, from the first lines of dialogue, even when Cruz is trying to, you know, make Wilson feel more comfortable. This is my second tour. I've never seen a boy from Georgia get shot. Like, which is a nice line. And in another film would be the kind of line that the hero would say. I find Oliver Stone's completely justified opposition to the conflict in Vietnam Mm. to be so overpowering that this immediately comes across as, as insincere. Yeah, well, I think particularly because there's something about the sequence that makes uh, Kovic feel so isolated and so a man unto himself that he doesn't, I don't see him as a squad leader or as someone who is a a part of a team. Like they're all hollering at each other, but there's no sense of camaraderie. There's no sense of in it together besides this one thing that he says to Wilson. And then Wilson kind of disappears for a while until he until he he suddenly reappears. Yes. yeah, Yeah, exactly. So. No, I think that the the part that Stone was clearly most anxious to get across was the chaos of it all. And we got that maybe to the detriment of the idea. I, I, I was surprised when Kovic comes home that he is still so on the side of the Marines exactly. at first. Yes. Because I didn't get the sense that he felt deeply a part of something or of a brotherhood when he was overseas. Exactly. Yeah, I think that's that's a really astute way of reading this. The interposition of Stone as an authorial figure here and his critique of the conflict in Vietnam absolutely prevents us from emotionally connecting to where Kovic is in the here and now of the story. Yeah, I think that's very astute. I would say that the only thing that Stone wants to show us more than the chaos of war and conflict is the graphic depiction of violence against civilians yes. in Vietnam. Yes. This is harrowing stuff. It, it was, yeah. Uh, it was harrowing and awful, uh, very difficult to watch. I, I will say I think important, though. I don't know that it needs to be so graphic, but it's important to make people think about it. People like even myself, who work hard to not think about it, it is sometimes important to make somebody grapple with the realities and the costs of even if you're not involved in something of letting something continue to happen do you think that this is a well-intentioned attempt to do that or do you think that this is spectacle for the sake of spectacle i think well-intentioned okay yeah when taken with the whole of the movie this was certainly no rambo sequence you know this this had a point to it yes 
the one thing that I think we can agree on is successful through this sequence is the confusion of that final assault. Absolutely. And we can feel, you know, a certain identity, a certain empathy with Kovic. Yes. For Wilson coming over the rise and his instinctive response. And again, a lot of this has to be credited to Cruz's performance. I think so, too. And also, I really enjoyed the uh, the cinematography and the color grading in the sequence. Just everything being orange or shadow yes. worked for me in I think it would have worked for me a little better if it had been more consistent through the scene because that's where we start is with like orange and black. Yeah. And then it rises into something that's a little more bleached and a little more washed out. And mm -hmm. then at the end of the sequence, you're right, we descend back into that orange and black, which are, of course, very iconic colors of depictions of the Vietnam conflict. Yes, yeah. which is interesting. Yeah. We then get the sequence where Kovic admits to his commanding officer that he killed Wilson. This, we should note, is a historical. This is not a history podcast, so I'm not going to go mm -hmm. into what really happened. There is an incident with Kovic shooting another uh, another soldier, but this is not how it played out with the commanding officer. Oh. This is a fabrication of stones. Okay. How do you feel about this? The performance that Cruz gives here is spectacular. I think it's mm -hmm. really, really wonderful. I think there are a lot of ways that it could have been not enough or too much. And I think he rides that line of just trying to get out the thing that he needs to say. Yeah. Uh, but I find the commanding officer to be a cardboard cutout. It's kind of yeah. central casting, right? Yeah. This is where I think we see the budget of this film. This budget should have been double, perhaps, mm. what it is in order to really serve this film properly. Because a lot of these smaller roles are not very well cast. They're not very sure. well provisioned. Yeah. Well, and I think in the in the scripting too, like his response right. is just too little. There's just mm. like, and it's not that I don't like the thing that he says, don't come in here and tell me this, I'll rip your head off or whatever it is. But there needed something else or something under the surface. I needed something else happening. Something under the surface. Yeah. Would and have benefited this film yes. in basically every shot of every scene. Which yeah. I do think Cruz is giving all the time. Cruz is. You can see... Cruz as Kovic thinking like yeah. you can see him thinking in a way that I think is really beautiful yeah we jump ahead three months and Kovic's unit again comes under fire but this time he is shot and wounded first in the foot and then in the chest he is rescued by a fellow marine but in the infirmary we see the horror of war yeah he receives the last rites from a chaplain and we Ooh. hard cut ahead to the Bronx Veterans Hospital, which is just pretty close to hell. This is yes. This is very difficult to watch. Very difficult to watch. I'm curious how accurate it is historically. It is accurate to Kovic's account, at least. Okay. I don't know what that means in terms right. of the historical record. Right. But certainly it fits our understanding of what happened to veterans coming back. Yeah. This, that one note that we get when the doctor comes in about the, uh, the blood pump. Yes. Where he credits their lack of provision to the fact that they're spending so much money on the war effort. Yeah. So it's oh. kind of, they get you going and they get you on the way back. It's it's ugly. It's really ugly and upsetting. Yeah. What do you think about the use of actors of color in this sequence? I don't know. I don't know either. Yeah. I think there is a way of looking at it. The reason that we are uncomfortable about this topic is that there's a way of reading the casting of actors of color in this sequence as being a means of dehumanizing, decivilizing this environment of making it worse than it would otherwise be. I don't know how true that is to the historical record. I don't know how true it is to Kovic's personal experience, but 
it, it made me uncomfortable watching the film because I would have liked at least a little justification, particularly when we bring in the white doctor at the end, who's yeah. like the one guy who displays any kind of empathy or kindness. There, Yeah, there's also an uncomfortable sense that maybe it was a way of denoting how impoverished this Absolutely. place was, yeah. um, both of which are really irresponsible and gross. Yeah, a more, a more generous read, especially because... The people who worked in the hospital, especially the 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 head nurse or orderly, the the, the main guy, I guess, yeah. uh, speak about the war, is that we're aligning these disenfranchised people and yes. showing the ways in which this particular war is oppressing both the veterans who have come out of it and black Americans. Well, and not this war specifically, right? But the, this war is a product of a system that is iniquitous. This this right. system oppresses people and uses people and and commodifies people. Yes. Whether you are serving in the military or you are a disenfranchised person of color in the Bronx in the late 1960s, right. yeah. months before the civil rights movement really gets going. In fact, we see that this is really the first kind of political turning point of the film because we see on the television the protesters in Chicago at the Democratic National Convention. Yeah, yeah. It's certainly made clear that the public perception of the war in Vietnam is changing and that these veterans will not receive the kind of pageantry that we saw earlier with the World War II veterans right. on the, the 4th of July parade. The doctor tells Kovic that he won't walk again and that he can't have children. He is determined, though, to persevere. He falls, breaks his leg. He has a vision of himself as a much younger man running out of the hospital, but the reality is much, much more stark. Mm -hmm. He refuses to have his leg amputated, which prolongs his recovery, and he doesn't get the care that he deserves. Yeah. This is the second half hour up to him leaving the hospital. The point at which he arrives home is the beginning of our third half hour. So the second half hour is yeah. all trauma. Yes. Just all of Vietnam and all of the hospital and is, yeah, I mean, so difficult to watch. Mm -hmm. Yeah. it's. I mean, I have a stomachache thinking about it right now. Right. It was really, really awful. Do you want to talk a little about Cruz's performance, particularly in pursuit of recovery, about how we can see a little bit of modern Cruz in Kovic's absolute refusal to give up? We see some of that, like, inhuman, steely determination. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I think so. And I mean, there are times and uh, in the hospital is one time and there's a time later where he's uh, yelling at his parents in the house. It's late at night and all the neighbors the are yelling looking, at yeah. the parents is a real low right. point. It's a real low point. You can't ask any actor to shout the word penis for 30 seconds without <laughs> stopping and expect that suit to have any kind of emotional no. weight or nuance. No. So so this and there, I feel like could have done. I, I would have preferred from the director. And I, again, fault the director and, and not Cruz here. Um, with moments of quiet, like you just, you need something for contrast so that it doesn't just all become a wash of white noise. Yeah. And I think that once he is strapped into the awful bed, that is... Yeah, this traction machine where he's yes. suspended upside down, yes. Yes, that that is the sequence that, to me, needs a breath. There's yeah, just yeah. maybe too much happening there. No, I do agree. And I I lose some of the it, it takes me away from some of like how harrowing it is because it's just such an onslaught to my senses that I just needed to stop for a little right. bit. And so that that empathy machine crashes just yeah. a little bit until we get some silence again. Which we get rather beautifully as we return home, we get the homecoming sequence. And the homecoming is really, really effective, I think. I think it's so good in part because though 
the direction is still like very thunderous. It's very yeah. consistent. It's very didactic. None of these characters are saying what they mean. Yes. Everyone is speaking in this coded subtext, which gives the dialogue for the first time in the film like real depth. Yeah. We're allowing these actors to perform while, you know, giving this purposeful facade. Yeah. I think this work I think this works so well. I completely agree. The homecoming sequence is probably my favorite as far as being just the most effective. Yeah. Mine yeah. too. Yeah. It's it's really lovely. It's doing something that it isn't saying. Like everything is below yeah. the surface, <laughs> which is just always more interesting to me, I think, than someone yeah, yelling penis. Yeah. For example. Yes. Yeah. Here we are not engaging in melodrama. Right. Everything is unspoken. Like literally everything is unspoken. Mm-hmm. The amount of times that we say in like this three minute sequence, it looks good. It looks great. It looks good. Yeah. It's wonderful. It's so rich. And yeah, mm-hmm. the performances are rising to meet the quality of that demand. Yeah. We cut ahead to the July 4th parade. This time with Kovic riding in the convertible, flinching himself at mm-hmm. the sounds of firecrackers. But the mood of the country has changed and he is not celebrated in the same way. Right. He gives his speech. He notes that the soldiers in Vietnam are doing their best. We're getting the echo of that, you know, God only cares that you do your best. But in the midst of it all, he hears a crying baby and we get the helicopter sound coming yeah. in. We're getting this evocation of PTSD. He mm-hmm. falters. He meets up. He is rescued by really his friend Tim. And later that night, the two reminisce, drinking beer and remembering their fallen friends and kind of addressing their injuries, physical and mental. I think another really great scene because, again, neither of them is saying the thing that they're really saying. Yes. The lighthearted way in which they're talking about the death of all of their friends Mm -hmm. in Vietnam is really lovely. It is so vulnerable and beautiful. I like this performance, too. That's Frank Whaley, who I really enjoyed in another one of the war movies that I enjoyed, which, if you can call it that, which is Swing Kids. Did you ever see Swing Kids? I've never seen Swing Kids, no. Frank Whaley has an excellent performance in that film. So I was, I'm always happy to see him, which isn't, I think, too frequent. But when he does pop up, I think, no, oh, I like this guy. He's good. He's been around in a few things. He was in Pulp Fiction. He's, oh, yeah, that's uh, right. Yeah. The kid in Field of Dreams. <laughs> Weirdly to mention Whoa, Field of Dreams yeah. again. And he shows up in the Marvel series Luke Cage, oh, which is yeah, one of the it. last Marvel mm-hmm. series that I watched. <laughs> <laughs> But no, you're right. He's genuinely very lovely He's good. here. He's got and chops. and yeah. this is such a complex and, and haunting scene. Mm. And I love any time a film situates the action outside of a lit house. Yeah. As in real life. I kind of love being outside of a lit house. I kind of love being <laughs> in the garden when all the lights are blazing. That's yeah. just a very romantic feeling for me anyway. And yeah, yeah, I love when films do that. And I like you had said that neither of the men are saying what they're really saying. But at the end, if you'll remember, Kovic does. Kovic yeah, finally says the real thing. And then uh, Tim, did you say was yeah. the name of the character? Shuts him down. Yeah. It's really too bad because he that's when he needs more than anything, someone who has been there to say the thing that is true. Right. And I think the fact that Whaley can't quite do it, Whaley, that Tim can't quite do it for him, um, helps for us to see how Kovic gets to where he does, where he finds his real band of brothers in the veterans who are aligned in their anti-war campaign. This is the emotional arc of this act. And we can see that, I think, as being the motive force that drives Kovic to Syracuse to go and see Donna, which is our next sequence. This is a really problematic sequence in some ways. Uh, This uh, assault by the police on these demonstrators did not happen in real life. Uh, This mm. is one of the letters that Stone had to write after the production was complete, after the film had been released. This is one of the letters of apology that he had to write Mm. was to basically the police department of Syracuse saying, I'm sorry, you didn't attack those kids. You didn't hit anyone with a baton. This didn't happen. Wow. 
And he had to do that because the police department of Syracuse was going to sue him. I'll bet they were. Yeah. <laughs> so let me ask you this. Mm. Is Kira Sedgwick good in this film? You know, I think so. You do? I do think okay, so. Okay, great. Yeah. <laughs> I guess you I don't. I was much less sure. No, I yeah. was really unsure. Genuinely. I, I always feel this way about Kira Sedgwick. When, every time I see her in something, I can't quite decide whether or not she's good. And maybe it's just that I like her. But I will say that I like her. I, good. And she certainly works for me in this performance. I haven't watched The Closer either. It is a grown-up performance, particularly yeah. at this point. And I think I maybe always get that from her. Yeah. Like, that's my memory of Phenomenon, too. Sure. Is that John Travolta is doing this kind of like, you know, boyish, what's happening to me? And he's the child, yeah. In the oh, relationship. No, yes. Yeah. And she's just very adult. And I seem to remember really liking that about her character. I remember the sequence where she shaves him. And I remember her being pissed off that he's been buying all her goddamn chairs and letting her think that somebody else is. And just thinking you that there's have something. Much clearer memories of phenomenon <laughs> than I do. Yeah. I'm. <laughs> Yeah, right. There is a thing about chairs. Isn't yeah. There? Well, she she apparently Weird. makes all these like wicker-ish chairs or something. And he keeps saying, oh, I found another buyer. But it turns out they're all in his house because I guess they're just damned uncomfortable and nobody wants to sit in them. Oh, but it's but, that sweet 90s romance of, you know, absolutely lying to someone in order to manipulate <laughs> them into sleeping with you. Exactly. That's what romance was until Awful. like 2006. Awful. <laughs> uh, anyway. So this part of the film does culminate with the police action against the demonstrators. This, by the way, you might have noticed the uh, guy with the black beard who is delivering this firebrand oratory oh, yeah. to... Yeah, that is Abby Hoffman. He was one of the Chicago Eight. Oh, yeah. that's cool. Yeah. Okay. So we come to the end of this act with, with police brutality. Yeah. And with Kovic crucially feeling underappreciated feeling lost at home which is a beat that we will kind of echo a couple times yeah. as the film moves towards its close but not really we won't really land that uh that's like the, his last line isn't it it Almost. is but it's there it's a recapitulation of a line that he already gave yeah and because it's in an interview format it doesn't feel necessarily yeah. authentic yeah but again all of that stuff shot in one day so we can kind of be a mm. little little merciful there so we cut ahead to the drunk kovic in a bar back on long island he gets into a fight with a Marine who served in the Second World War. We can see here that it's not just these these young hippie kids who yeah. aren't respecting the armed forces. It's also the old timers don't respect the kids who served in Vietnam, which is right. a really, I will say, credit to Stone for that, credit mm -hmm. to Kovic for that. I had never heard that perspective before. And it's really upsetting. It is it's upsetting really and shocking. interesting. Yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. Speaking of things that are upsetting and shocking, he then hits on Holly Marie Combs. Oh, who looked 12. Who what the hell was that? 15. Awful. She is 15 when she shoots this. And you're right, looks even younger. Awful. I was never a charmed guy. Were you a charmed girl? Did you watch no. a lot of charmed back no, in the day? No, seems like I would have, but no. <laughs> it does seem like right? I would have, honestly. <laughs> uh, yeah, this is, this is really upsetting and is mm -hmm. going to set an absolute pattern for the way that we interact with women for the rest of this film. Yeah. It's, it's gross. Mm -hmm. Yeah, horribly misjudged. In fact, this entire sequence where he is dancing in his wheelchair, he falls on the floor, his friends take him home and kind of half-heartedly bring him to his door. This is where we segue into the fight with his mother. Yeah. And yes, it is bad to have any actor shout the word penis the way that they make him shout the word penis mm -hmm. in this film. You can't really make anyone look cool while they're having a fight with their mom. <laughs> yes. Particularly if it's a drunken fight. Yeah. But this does show ultimately his 
alienation even alienation. here from yes. you know this community that was so proud of him before he went and was so proud of him even or at least professed to be proud of him when he came home right now we're seeing the cracks even in that and there's something nice structurally to those three sequences yeah. in succession i think sure but yeah, unpleasant to watch. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this is this is where I would have gone to the bathroom had I been in a theater. I think. Yes. Yeah. I I think looking at this script would maybe have chosen to make Kovic just just not drunk or just not as drunk. Yes. Make him a little more eloquent. Let Cruz play to the top of his intelligence mm-hmm. as an actor. Make this just a little more a point of principle and make him a little less wretched because yeah. we had him wretched in the hospital and God knows we're going to have him wretched or, again in Mexico. Yeah. Or make his mother smart. Yeah. That would also work. That would help too. Yeah. I do like the performance of the mother. This is Caroline Cava uh, playing Mrs. Kovic. Doesn't even get a first name in the credits of the film, which is emblematic of something. Mm-hmm. I'm sure. Uh, I like the flat brutality of that performance in terms of like her moral outlook, in terms of her sure. philosophical, political outlook. Yes, mm. it's, it's extremely stark and she plays the edges of that starkness, I think, very well. I also like the performance of the father. I can't believe, in fact, that we haven't mentioned Raymond Barry, Raymond J. Barry, who plays Mr. Kovic in this film and was also a staple of like 90s and 2000s television. He plays Senator Richard Matheson in The X-Files. The congressman who is like quietly keeping Mulder informed and keeping the X-Files oh. open. He plays Jack's grandfather in Lost. Uh-huh. Okay. He's, wow. in, he's in a few right. things. He does yeah. some stuff. Okay. Both actors, I think, giving better than the material performances here. Yes. In the homecoming scene where he uh, leads Ron into his bedroom and shows that he had like the special toilet installed yeah. and then leans down for that hug against his chest is... That was really quite moving and lovely. And again, a quiet moment. I really appreciated the quiet moments in the film because we need them with all of the bombast. From then what we might read as a tonal misstep with the fight with his mom, we hard cut, possibly the hardest cut in the film, to Mexico. And all at once, this feels like a different film. All at once, the camera is like real leery and horny. We are tracking women that move past the camera in a way that we haven't previously. Admittedly, mm-hmm. there haven't been a lot of women in this film. Well, yeah, but it's also, I, I think that this is at least narrative. Like, we are showing, for the first time, Ron Kovic having a sexual awakening with no sexual organs kind that of, work. Yes, but it feels a little uncomfortable that we're also objectifying, again, women of color. <laughs> <laughs> in oh, a way yeah. that we were not objectifying white women previously. That's, you know, we don't do fair. this in the bar when he's drunk and horny. Well, kind of with the young girl we were just talking about. The camera doesn't move in the, the same way. We're not that. objectifying. Yeah, Thank God, because she was, she was so young. But yes. the camera is not objectifying those women the way that the camera is objectifying these women. It feels to me, at least, like there's yeah, a total that, change. That's true. Although I think most of the women are sex workers. So it's also a different. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. But that's an unpleasant kind of objectification, too. True. Right? Mm-hmm. We get Willem Dafoe in all of his unhinged glory. We get Kovic going into town. We get him hooking up with Vivica A. Fox. Weirdly underserved by this. That You're was looking... Vivica A. Fox? Yes, it is. Yes, it is. No wonder. She was wonderful. Isn't she great? She was so good. In I didn't recognize her, though. Film. It was just all the blue eye makeup, I think, yeah. that just threw me off. Wow. Two scenes. I like her. Manages to I communicate so much. So much empathy and tenderness. That was unnecessarily good and lovely. I think as much as the sex scene is very powerful, it's actually her second scene. When she comes back and obviously understands that Kovic does not 
get what this relationship is. That yeah. he is hurt because their relationship is not strictly transactive. Mm. It's it's good. It's powerful stuff. She's terrific. Yeah. Yeah. I really think so. From there, though, we slip into this nightmare vision of Mexico. We start, like, oversaturating all of the colors. Yeah. We get Willem Dafoe fighting with his sex worker of choice. His, yeah. She recurs, though, so it, it's clear that he has some kind of ongoing relationship with her, but we're not Some kind of something, yeah. Mm-hmm. He has struck her. She is bleeding through the sequence. Piece of shit. They get yep. kicked out. They get mm-hmm. in the cab. The cab ride goes wrong. They wind up stranded by assholes. the side of the road. The cab ride goes wrong. Okay, then, wait, wait, wait. You can't say the cab ride goes wrong. The cab they ride are, goes wrong. Yeah, <laughs> because... This cab does they, not function <laughs> as it should. It's supposed to take you to your destination, not drop you off halfway through. Well, yeah, but I would no, drop I those assholes off, They're too. Off. They're the worst. They're both so awful. And then if we're talking about terrible overwritten fight scenes in this film, (laughs) the mother can't hold a candle to this ridiculous nonsense. The two of them just repeating the same line over and over, then spitting on each other and then wrestling in the dirt and the dust by the side of the road. And then we're going to cap that scene with a joke as the car stops on the road and asks them if they want a ride. It's Ah, it's so bad. It's such a terrible, terrible yeah. waste of everyone's time. A, a waste <laughs> of everyone's time. This accomplishes nothing. Yeah. And it is just so overblown. This absolutely feels like it's something that's true to Kovic's experience, right? This is a thing sure. that happened to him yeah. once and he wanted to include it. And of course, we're going to transcribe it, I'm sure, literally into the film. It, mm-hmm. It's awful. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Not my favorite moment either. That is the end of the fourth half hour. It's everything from him getting drunk in the bar and hitting on Holly Marie Combs all the way through to the end of the Mexico sequence. (laughs) Maybe, I mean, obviously not as difficult as the second half hour where we're in Vietnam and in hospital. But I think this is my least favorite part of the film. I think it's oh, it's just it, and for all that Vivica Fox I was is say, amazing. She was such a high point luminous. for me that I can't put that there. Yeah, I think, and this is again. Oh, Willem Dafoe was a low point. <laughs> this is kind of two movies in a row where I feel like I'm being like weirdly puritanical, which is not my default state at no. all. Quite the opposite. In fact, I don't think that Vivica Fox needed to be as naked or as objectified as she was during the sex sequence. I might disagree with you. I'm, I I think that it did work for me. Uh, I, not having a penis myself, am someone who <laughs> is like, my sexuality is a very important part of my identity, especially after, you know, coming out of the conservative church. So for me, this was a nice piece of storytelling of someone who was like coming out of this enforced morality when he was a teenager then to come to a point now where he wanted to express his sexuality and couldn't was really upsetting to see. And then to have her, again, like tenderness with him when she kissed his forehead or his eyelids, I yeah, think. I agree with all of this. Yeah. It is literally just her disrobing in front of the camera. I think it could be just as effective if we had just cropped it a little bit. If it had just been, if we had just treated her, and this is really what the problem is, if we had treated her the way that we have treated every other person in this film and not suddenly pulled the camera way back so we get a full body shot of her taking off her clothes. And again, I'm all in favor of people being naked in movies. More people should be naked in more movies, quite (laughs) frankly. But this one felt just 
oddly exploitative. And yeah. that may be inflected a little bit by the sex worker relationship of it Maybe all. Maybe so. That Maybe extra so. note of objectification. Yeah. The fact that Vivica Fox is a woman of color is right. also like just a little more unpleasant. It's just, mm-hmm. it feels, yeah, it feels leery mm-hmm. in, in much the same way as we discussed back in Rain Man. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's fair. And then from here... We're really just closing up the film. We get Kovic going to Georgia, where he goes first to Wilson's grave and then goes to talk with Wilson's family, confesses what has happened. We get a little bit more of that, you know, American militarism at the heart of the American identity, Mm. the idea that every generation of this family has fought in the next great war. You know, that's really quite lovely. I think these performances are maybe a little undercooked a little a little first pass except i would credit lily taylor who plays the wife who gets one line when she says i can't forgive you but maybe god will oh her and delivers it like it's the last line of the film just has this like quiet confidence i think she's extremely good yeah yeah that's true i this was an interesting sequence for me because i i found it hard to decide whose side i was on because initially i was like don't tell them this story, Kovic. This does not help them. It only helps you. And yeah. then I was like, but maybe this guy could use a little help and maybe that's all right. Maybe it's okay that he can unburden himself, yeah. that he shouldn't be in this position because exactly. we should be able to institutionally support people who have yes. gone through these kinds of experiences. Yes. But yeah. So yeah, the 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 delicacy of that I yeah. found really interesting and compelling. I, again, think Cruz is spectacular. He's, He's maybe yeah. never better in this film than when he is confessing this exact crime twice. Yeah. The first time to his commanding officer and then here to the family. It's, yeah, it's extraordinary work. I agree. Yeah. From there, we jump ahead to 1972 when Kovic goes to the Republican National Convention in Miami as a part of Veterans Against the War. We see Nixon get the nomination. Mm. Kovic talks to the TV reporter. He's giving his packaged sound bites. And it's interesting here that we get this this recapitulation of Kovic as a man who thinks and speaks in sound bites, right? Mm-hmm. We get earlier the constant repetition of love it or leave it. Yeah. And here we're getting the same kind of carefully processed and packaged sound bites of philosophy mm-hmm. as he's talking to the TV reporter. He gets dragged out of the convention by security. He is about to be arrested. He is rescued by other protesters. Asterisk, none of this is true. None of mm-hmm. this happened. This is this is fabrication. He was in fact yeah. invited in to the convention by the security team on the promise that he would not make a fuss. He did not make a fuss. He gave a very quiet and well-behaved uh, TV interview and then left of his own accord okay. with his friends. Yeah. That was it. Hmm. But, you know, that's not drama. That's not dramatic TV. And from there, we cross the aisle and jump ahead to 76 and Kovic addressing the Democratic National Convention this time in New York. This is after he has written his autobiography. We get the glimpse there. Did you notice Cruz signing the book and handing it back? And it's not his face on the back of the book. It's the yes, real wrong Kovic's I did notice face. that. And I... Yeah. I don't know how I feel about that. I like I, it. I liked it, also, I decided. Yeah. Yeah, okay. Yeah. <laughs> I, I liked it as a reminder that this was a thing that really happened, and the more important part is the book. Yes, that's certainly true. Yeah. That's certainly true. And and the real-life experience. And the yeah, real-life experience is more sure. important, yes. And then we flash back to the beginning of the film with really no meaningful resolution. And, of course, we're not going to get meaningful resolution because this isn't a narrative as much as no. it's a critique. And I really felt that the flashback was, to me, like the most insecure part of the film. Like, we did Absolutely. not need that. And we do it twice because we also, when he's telling Wilson's family what happened, yeah. we are also flashing back to things that happened two hours ago. Yeah. Like we remember <laughs> we were there. It's been important. He's brought it yeah. up constantly. Right. We haven't forgotten that this happened. It is. You're right. 
absolutely insecure. Mm -hmm. And is it the kind of thing that makes it feel, again, more like a TV miniseries? Because like, oh, well, if I'm watching this the following Tuesday, then yeah, maybe I won't have remembered. Part but... four of a special televisual yes. event? Yes, yeah. absolutely. It really does. It's, it's striking, mm -hmm. particularly talking through it with you here. It's striking how much of a TV movie yeah. it is. And that is the end of Born on the Fourth of July. <sighs> We, we made it. Did you guys. it. <laughs> we have. We get one... to talk about Robin Hood soon. Well, <laughs> <laughs> before we get to go and talk about Robin Hood, we have to put this on the list. Yes. This is really challenging because I have not had such a varied, such a bivalent response to a film that we've discussed so mm. far in this series. I think that Cruise is genuinely brilliant. Cruise not is just wonderful. Good by the standards of Cruise, and not just iconic as he's been in some other films. Right. But this is a genuinely great performance. Yeah. And maybe, arguably, the last great actor performance that we will get from yeah. Cruz because he is about to be swallowed up by movie stardom, mm -hmm. even more so than he is in 1989. But this film is unfocused. Yeah. It is insecure. It doesn't really know what it's saying. It doesn't really know what political agenda it is articulating. So I see this as a conflict between Cruz on the one hand and Stone on the other. Yeah. And I don't know what to do with them. Yeah, it's hard to because this list is so subjective. Like, it's just where would we put it? We're not trying to do like an AFI top 100 sort of thing. Like, <laughs> Oh, yeah. Our list isn't objective like the AFI list is. <laughs> but you know what I mean. Uh, you just yeah. mean we don't have to answer to anyone for this we list. We don't have to answer yeah. to anyone. And you can't fight us. Yeah, that's, I guess, what I'm trying to say. Um. I mean, obviously, it's reminiscent of Taps. In a way. In yes. a way. Obviously. I think it's probably better than Taps. I think it's better than Taps. It's probably equally competent in terms of a very straightforward kind of cinematography. Mm -hmm. A couple of slips, but mostly like just very clean televisual, right? We said that about Taps yeah, at the time. Taps also feels televisual. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But obviously, this performance is just much larger. Is much performance is greater. so great. Nobody yeah. matches this performance. Yeah, sometimes. no, that's true. That's true. And I think that the same could be said of, of all the right moves, also, which is right above taps on our list. I think uh, I would argue that the ten minutes of high school wrestling story that we get at the beginning of this film is <laughs> yes. better than the ninety minutes of high school football story that we okay, get in okay. all the right moves. Then, then we're going back up the list, and on top of that is Color of Money. I mean, obviously, Cruz is better. I think Cruz is better. There's not really, we, we've talked about a few of the movie. small performances yeah. that we've enjoyed here, but there's nothing like a Newman performance in this film. There's yeah. nothing like a Mary Elizabeth Master Antonio performance yeah. in this film. It, it's difficult. I would say probably around Color of Money. I, I think I think we just did it. <laughs> am, I going above to feel, that... am I going to feel terrible if we put this below Cocktail? <laughs> yeah, a little bit. How did we get Cocktail above the Color of Money? That's hilarious. Probably that was me. I was not into the Color of Money. You were not into the Color of Money. <laughs> I think that's what it is. <laughs> okay. Well, let me ask you this. Would you be more interested in sitting down to rewatch Born on the Fourth of July or watching The Color of Money? Uh, probably The Color of Money. Again, because it's not so harrowing. Um, however, yeah, I mean, that's that's going to be the one. It's, you really didn't like The Color of I Money. I really didn't. I'm so sorry. Also, I think I was right about Scorsese. Have you seen this bit with Scorsese and Meryl Streep in a panel? I recently? haven't. No. Okay. Apparently this was recent. There's this panel. I don't even know who all is on it because I just saw it in a quick Instagram reel and we know how these things go. But Meryl Streep is speaking about uh, the change in the industry now as there are more female directors. And Meryl is saying, Meryl, I say like we're friends. Miss Streep is saying um, 
that women have learned to speak the language of men, but somehow men are still not learning to speak the language of women, and it is their turn to try and learn and get onto the level of, of what a woman is saying, to which Martin Scorsese says, I think what Meryl is saying is... And she laughs so hard. She leans back in her chair, kicks her foot well up over her head like she's a cheerleader in high school, just dying as everyone just kind of like chuckles and lets Scorsese finish his thought. Yeah, I mean, you're right. So this is not telling us anything we didn't right. already know. I guess. Well, but, wow, why was saying nice people keep saying, "Oh no, Scorsese, yeah, ally," and I'm like, ah, "Is he good uh, at it though? Is he good at it?" Well, that tells us two very important things. Firstly, that is why the color of money is so low on our list. And the next time you look at the list and go, <laughs> "Why is cocktail above the color?" It's because you hate the color of money and you hate Scorsese personally. It's a vendetta. I'm sorry, but it might be true. <laughs> The second thing is, Born on the Fourth of July goes underneath the color of money. I think it has to. I think it has to go down there. It, yeah. has, it, it certainly isn't better toward women than the yeah, color of money that's is. that's true. I think we see actually a lot of the same kinds of problems, a lot of the same kind of very masculine directors yes. in the late 1980s giving the same kind of treatment to women. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm, yeah, ready to move on from this film, ready to move on from the 1980s because next week, well, next week's going to be interesting. Yeah. <laughs> Next week, in our last podcast of the year, we are going to be reuniting with Tony Scott and with Mm -hmm. Simpson and Bruckheimer and, brilliantly, with Nicole Kidman. I'm so happy we finally get Nicole Kidman. For 1990s Days of Thunder, a film that is credited with bringing the era of the producer-led blockbuster to an absolute end. (laughs) Oops. Yeah. So this one's bad? Is it going to be not great? Is it fun? By reputation, and I have seen this film 20 years ago Mm -hmm. and not since, so I don't know. But by reputation, it's fine. But it is not what you would expect from the team behind Top Gun. Yeah. (laughs) And this is NASCAR, right? Uh, Yes. That's too bad. Because I do love racing, but NASCAR (laughs) is is not my jam. But okay. So that is coming up next week. The Last Star in Hollywood is a Next Word production. And if you would like to support Next Word, if you would like to help us make more things, including my own tangent podcast, Stars and Swords, in which I am footnoting genre fiction, we are now halfway through The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe (laughs) by dint of extraordinary effort. I said that that was going to be a half-hour podcast. Yes. The second episode clocked in at an hour and a quarter, and I completed two-thirds of the reading that I had set. Hilarious. I can't keep this pace up without you guys heading on over to (laughs) patreon.com slash nextword and pledging your support. You will also get, of course, bonus episodes, including our upcoming discussion of Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves, and my upcoming discussion of the 2005 movie adaptation of The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Mm -hmm. That stuff is going to be fun, as well as a, how did we describe our, our next word insider show, Monthly Plus but uh-huh. also whenever we feel like doing yeah. it. Yeah. It's good times. It's Which good I can times. totally see us doing Christmas Day because we have nothing to do when the kids aren't here. <laughs> and I'm pretty sure that at about 11 a.m. we're like, so you so, want to record a podcast? You know, a podcast? <laughs> we can podcast. All of this, of course, is possible thanks to you, dear listener. Thanks to our wonderful supporters on Patreon. And thanks to our superstar supporters on Patreon who pledge a little extra in part so that we will read their names right here at the end of the podcast. Elizabeth, would you like to thank our patrons? I would, of course. Thanks to Megan Louder, to Leslie Skipa, to Louise in Dallas, and to Phoebe. We so appreciate you. We really do. Thanks so much, you guys. Thanks for sticking with us through this episode, too. Next week, fun. Fun and hijinks, I promise. That's what we'll have 
with Days of Thunder. And we'll probably talk about that one Simpsons episode two. <laughs> we'll be back next week with more. Until then, take care. Bye.